Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, March the 13th, 2023. I'm back in San Francisco after a week in London. Um, restoring my energies uh and we are back on keen on with our regular schedule uh viewers regular viewers and listeners know that we spent a lot of time thinking about world war ii we did a show last year with the great british historian uh richard overy asking whether the second world war had ended yet given uh how much we talk about it uh, given, of course, the Ukraine, and of course, we concluded, no, it hasn't ended, and it probably never will end. Seems to offer us all sorts of lessons, according to some people, like the novelist Kristen Beck, who was on the show. Uh, World War II remains seductive for novelists because it establishes very clear boundaries for good and evil, for good and evil characters. It's a clear uh, uh, a series of events in which good people behaved well and evil people behaved very badly. Um, and we've certainly done some shows on that. One, for example, with Judy Battalion, who's written a best-selling book about uh, Jewish women in the ghetto who fought against the Nazis, the evil Nazis. Uh, another book about the heroism of American pilots by a man called Dan Hampton, a book called Valor, um, and indeed, even uh, it's not so much military valor, but mental valor with Damien Wilson, who did a sh who, who, who came on the show to talk about Josephine Baker. He has a book, Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, Fr British Spy. Uh, Josephine Baker showed her mental acuity as well as valor, I guess, in um, undercover fighting the Germans. But World War II, of course, is not quite as simple as some people might like to think. We've done shows on Hitler's boy soldiers. Are they the victims or the perpetrators of injustice? Uh, we discussed that with Helen Munson, whose father was one of Hitler's boy soldiers. Uh, another uh, series of conversations about American morality in the Second World War. The historian Zachary Shaw came on the show a month or two ago. Uh, talking about American behavior in the war as a struggle between vengeance and virtue. It's complicated, uh, Shaw noted, in terms of American um, behavior in the war. It wasn't just the valor of its uh, fighter pilots, but of course it was also the decision uh, to drop the atomic bombs on Japan. Uh, even the American behavior in the war uh, has uh, racial controversy. The historian Matthew Delmont was on the show recently talking about the way in which African-American soldiers were, dis were treated disgracefully uh, by the Americans themselves. And of course, there's the issue of collaboration. We did a show uh, on Coco Chanel as a Nazi collaborator, a potential Nazi collaborator. There's certainly something very gray about Coco Chanel. She doesn't fall into the conventional and, um, I guess, reassuring uh, distinction between good and evil. We are uh, pursuing that gray area today with an old friend of the show, Ian Buruma, who has 
uh, a new book out, The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. And this is a book, I think, uh, Ian, which is about the moral grayness of the Second World War. Ian, who is a very noted scholar on many things, including the Second World War, joins us from his home in New York City. Ian, welcome and congratulations. The book is just out to great critical acclaim. Um, is this a book about moral grayness, the collaborators? Well, moral grayness certainly comes into it. Um, uh, there were, I, I don't think it's very interesting writing about most people, uh, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, if uh, there is no grayness at all. Um, absolute heroes uh, and absolute villains aren't very interesting because most human beings aren't like that. And um, I grew up, uh, I was born in December 51, so very much in the shadow of World War II and in a country that had been recently occupied by the Nazis, the Netherlands. And we grew up very much in an atmosphere of who'd been good and who'd been bad and uh, as though they were absolute categories. And so I was always interested really in the question of collaboration because the, the temptation uh, to look the other way, to uh, be opportunistic, to um, gain a little power um, in the wrong way and so on, I find more interesting from a human point of view than the decision or, 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 or well, the, the, the characteristic of the absolute of the hero because there aren't that many heroes. It's hard to imagine oneself being a hero, and it'd be rather arrogant to assume that one would have been a hero, whether it's a little bit easier to think of oneself as a possible sinner. It's interesting you, you bring up growing up in, in Holland, Ian. We did a show, and, I, and I'm sure you're familiar with this book, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, The Diary Keepers. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, World War II in the Netherlands is written by the people who lived through it by mm -hmm. Nina Siegel. Right. Um, and of course, what she's trying to remind us in this book, and it was a wonderful conversation, actually, was about the, the moral complicity, the Dutch moral complicity of many Dutch people in uh, the rounding up and murder of the Jews, uh, the Dutch Jews by, by the Nazis. Is there something particular about I wouldn't say the Dutch, but the Dutch experience in the Second World War, which brings out this concern with the moral purity of the Second World War. Is it perhaps because the Dutch are such direct people? I don't want to culturally generalize, Ian, of course. Well, uh, first of all, I don't think there is such a thing as moral purity. Um, and uh, the, the, the history of the Netherlands in, in World War II, especially as uh, regarding the, the fate of the Jews, uh, is a very fraught and, and painful one. Um, on the one hand, uh, a larger percentage of uh, Jews in the Netherlands, both Dutch Jews and foreign uh, refugees, um, that, was that, that was murdered by the Nazis was higher than anywhere else in Western Europe. Uh, not as high as in Lithuania and Poland, perhaps, but, but more than 75% never came back from the death camps. And there has been a lot of uh, debate about why this should have been. I don't think it's because the Dutch as a people were more anti-Semitic or more cowardly than others. Uh, in every country, um, most people 
looked the other way um, at best um, when Jews were round, rounded up and sent away for murder in cattle cars. I think there are, there are two possible reasons, one of which I touch upon in my book. Um, one is that there are no mountains. It's very difficult to hide anywhere in Holland. So it was very easy for the Germans to round up Jews. And there isn't a lot of space either. I mean, it's a tiny... Not a lot of space either, but mountains are important. The other thing is that it was a very settled bourgeois country where nothing much happened really since the Napoleonic invasion. Um, and uh, people were not really used to defying authority. There was a kind of bourgeois feeling that the authorities are basically uh, to be trusted as long as you're law abiding and you stick to the rules, nothing much is going to happen to you. And this even extended to uh, the Dutch Jews um, in the war when people were being rounded up. Um, and um, the chief rabbi in Amsterdam um, instructed, or at least advised, um, his fellow Jews to stick to the rules, to obey the authorities, not to do anything dramatic, not to resist, and then perhaps things won't be so bad. And that was very typical um, of the attitude of people, which is neither heroic, certainly not heroic. It, it, it's, it's not anti-Semitic as such. It's um, a misguided trust uh, in authority um, uh, and, and that it's always to the best to stick to the rules, even though the authorities are evil, as they were uh, under Nazi occupation. Um, and um, one of my characters... Uh, Hasidic uh, con man and fraudster called Friedrich Weinreb, who was an immigrant from Lov now with um, and came to Holland via Vienna as a young as a boy, and he concluded quite rightly uh, that um, everything was topsy turvy. Um, uh, the the laws uh, under Nazi occupation um, were fiendish. And so to survive, um, one should lie, one should break the law, one should break the rules, um, uh, and etc., which all of which he did, alas, um, at the cost of, um, of fellow Jews rather than the Germans. I mean, Weinreb comes across as your book as perhaps, I mean, maybe I'm making, oversimplifying this, the anti-Schindler. Is that a, a fair way of describing him? He seems... If not, I mean, your, your book is about three characters. Um, Felix Kirsten, a German um, who was the masser of some of the, the more prominent Nazis. Weinreb you've talked about, and also um, a, a woman called Yoshiko Kawashima, um, a, 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 um, a, a woman who uh, was eventually... Um, executed, uh, who was raised in Japan and, and, and served as a spy uh, for the Japanese. Um, is there something about Weinrib that somehow captures the spirit or the moral lessons or the lack of moral lessons in the book, uh, Ian? Well, first of all, um, uh, Kerstin Himmler's Masso was not a German. He was, uh, he, he was born in Estonia. and he Apologize, was yeah. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have been a collaborator. He would simply have been right, a right, right. Uh, Kawashima Yoshiko was Chinese or or Manchu, and so that made her a collaborator. Her, Kawashima Yoshiko was the name that was given to her when she was adopted by a, a Japanese ultra nationalist, uh, and so she grew up 
uh, partly in Japan, um, but uh, was in fact Chinese, which is why she was executed at the end of the war, of the war as a traitor. Now, Weinreb as the anti-Schindler, first of all, Schindler again, um, even though it made a good story to show him as, as a completely heroic figure, was not morally pure either. I mean, he was uh, an industrialist um, who needed cheap labor and um, it was a good scheme that he'd, 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 he'd come on, which was to employ uh, Jewish um, inmates of a concentration camp and thereby saving them, which was good for his business, and it was also a decent thing to do. Weinrep doesn't really fall into any of these categories. He was a man who always thought he was smarter than everybody else. And he thought he could outfox the Germans uh, as well as, as anybody that, that, that crossed his path. And um, he liked to be, and, the, and this is where, what he has in common with the other two characters, uh, in Yiddish, a macher. He was a fixer, a man who liked to think of himself as, as a big man, an important man who was always uh, in touch with powerful figures and so on. And um, uh, his deceit was that he made up a list, apparently or supposedly backed up by a German general, army general called von Schumann. And anybody who paid Weinreb could be on the list, or, uh, or perhaps not anybody, but people who paid him could be on the list um, and uh, would then supposedly uh, get on a train to safety in Switzerland or Portugal or Spain. Now, the list was completely imaginary as was the German general who backed it. So he was a fraud. And when he was uh, captured in the end by the Nazis, uh, all new schemes were devised in collaboration with the Nazis, uh, which actually cost uh, Jewish lives. Yeah, the, Harats, um, uh, the, the, the New York Times in the review asks of a that, that your three characters are they immoral traitors, war heroes, or survivors? It depends who you ask. But with someone like Weinreb, I mean, isn't he clearly uh, an amoral traitor? Is there anything about him that is in any way morally uplifting? I mean, here was a man who abused women, who sent other Jews, who, who stole from his fellow Jews and then sent them to their death. Well, I don't think any of the three are morally uplifting, but then I'm not terribly interested in moral uplift. I'm interested in, 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 in people, and especially people who do bad things for complicated reasons. Well, there wasn't, and, very, there wasn't anything very complicated about what, uh, you know, Hararetz asks uh, the continuing mystery of Friedrich Weinreich, but there's nothing very mysterious about what he did. He, he did it to survive. Well, no, if he wanted simply and to, to uh, enrich himself, I mean, that, yes, that's absolutely. Really simple. No, that's all true. Uh, but if he'd want, simply wanted to survive, he, he, he would have uh, uh, tried to go into hiding, not devise an elaborate scheme that actually uh, was very risky. Also, one should, and this, this is not, nothing to do with moral uplift, but one should also take into account that Weinreb, simply because he was Jewish, himself, uh, would have been sent to the de death camps um, if the Nazis had got their way. So, he, uh, yes, he, he, he was a fraud. But um, I'm I find fraud interesting, and I compare him, at least his method, um, to um, Bernie Madoff, in a way, because he used a similar ruse, which was that he used his reputation amongst fellow Jews as a pious man, 
and, a, and an upright figure, um, as well as giving people the impression that to be on his list was somehow a privilege. So after a while, when too many people were, who were desperate, of course, for anything, anything that could possibly save them, wanted to be on his list, he did something very similar to Madoff. He would say, well, I'm afraid it's already, uh, it's very difficult to go on this list and, and you haven't quite made the cut, which made people even more um, uh, desperate to be on his list. So it's, it's not the, to, to, to see the character in terms of moral purity or, 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 or pure immorality and simply as a villain, yes, you can do that, but that makes him less interesting. It's, it's, it's what, why people do things that are indeed bad, uh, that interest You say, me. Ian, less interesting. The review, um, the New York Times review suggests that, um, uh, that you lecture, uh, and maybe you can correct the review if it's wrong, but that you lecture the readers on the merits of living in truth, um, that their primary sin was not that they deceived others, but they conned themselves. And then uh, you quote by... And, and this is what you write at the end. By turning your own life into a fiction, you don't really have an identity at all. That is a, a melancholy state that threatens many of us, whether we live in a dictatorship or not. But that may be true. But isn't there something more darker about these stories, particularly maybe Winery, but, but the other three as well? That they well, of course. Chose to, to do of this. course. But, but that's a, a given. I mean, readers don't need me to point out uh, that the Holocaust was a terrible thing or that the Nazis did. Uh, well, that, that, that's another issue, Ian. That's, no, no one's arguing. No, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is how you behave as an innocent in this situation. Do you, yes, but I don't condone do you, uh, do you collaborate with evil or do you choose not to collaborate? Isn't that the core? I mean, many writers, Camus in particular, is written series of masterpieces on this. I mean, isn't that the core issue for everyone involved, somehow caught in, in the Second World War? Well, even that is a little bit more complicated because it would depend a bit on who you are and what position you're in. Um, if you, let's say, um, uh, owned a large factory, um, giving, uh, providing large numbers of jobs to people, was it better to say... I won't cooperate with the occupation authorities in any way and see the factory taken over by Nazis uh, or close it down so that many people lose their jobs or do you try to make the best of it? I don't think that's an, a morally absolute position. So uh, you see it in the Ukraine today um, when the Russians take over a town, occupy a town, um, Ukrainian authorities who cooperate in some manner in order for people to be fed, for example, have been uh, denounced as collaborators uh, the moment that the Ukrainians took back that town. Now, is that a morally yeah. completely pure... I, I mean, I wonder in, a, in, in almost in an existentialist sense whether the real nightmare of the Second World War wasn't that you, you and your family got murdered, which obviously isn't a pleasant fate, but the real nightmare is being forced with this dilemma of whether or not to become a collaborator. And we can all sit here and say, of course we wouldn't. But as you suggest, the world is much more complicated. And, and, and are you suggesting many of us might have indeed chosen to collaborate? Well, take the, the one of the most controversial elements in this story, 
um, that uh, uh, Weinreb himself uh, was involved in. He was extremely critical of the so-called Jewish councils. Um, and uh, the Jewish councils collaborated with the Nazis and did a lot of the dirty work uh, for the Nazis um, and uh, have been denounced uh, by many people during the war, like Weinrepp and also after the war for having done so. Their view, these were usually notables uh, in any given uh, large Jewish community, their view at the time was that if, if they had some role to play um, in uh, the persecution of Jews, then perhaps they could mitigate the circumstances, could make it a little bit easier, po possibly save a few people. Now, that may have, may have been misguided, uh, they were in a completely impossible position. There was, very, there was nothing they really could do, and most of them didn't survive themselves. But I wouldn't say, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say if I'd been in their shoes, I would have known what to do. It, it, it wasn't impossible. No, I mean, the nightmare is being in their shoes. In, in, yes, from quite, my point quite of view, so. I just, yeah. that, that fate is the worst imaginable fate because you're forced to behave as what we're taught uh, is to be a real human. And of course, most of us, for one reason or other, can't live up to that. One of the great things, Ian, about your work, you've written many books, is that you're not only a scholar of the Second World War, but of Japanese cinema. You, you've spent, you, you've lived for a time in Japan. You know both East Asia and Europe as well as anyone. I wonder, are there, when you compare the stories of, of Kirsten and Weinreb and uh, Yoshiba, um, are there cultural differences that emerge? Um, I mean, I know it's hard to generalize also when it comes to these individual stories about broader cultures, but are there cultural differences in terms of making sense of collaboration and how collaboration is treated, say, comparing China and the Baltic states and Holland? And the, and, and well, the Jewish community? I, 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 no doubt there are cultural differences. I mean, China and Japan are not, don't have the same cultures as, as either the Baltic states or, 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 or Holland or Germany. But uh, I think the circumstances were both different and similar. I mean, the war that the Japanese waged, uh, atrocious though it was, not quite the same thing as the war that the Germans waged, particularly when it comes to the Holocaust. But what interests me, again, is not so much whether a Chinese or Manchu woman who was raised partly in Japan, what cultural differences there are between her and the other two characters. I'm more interested to understand how people, what makes people tick in, in these extreme circumstances, which were similar in some ways and dissimilar in others. I mean, you say again, that's, uh, that's presenting us as watches, uh, Ian, and of course, we tick in different ways, don't we? And may maybe we don't tick, that's our problem, or our lack of ticking uh, is something that uh, particularly well, we all, interests we, we all tick in the sense that we're all alive and we're all faced with, in our lives, with moral dilemmas and so on. And um, my interest as a writer has not, never been to moralize or to, um, to, to, to think of, the, of, of life or the world in terms of heroes and villains, but to understand um, what happens, what, how people behave, how countries behave and so on. And it doesn't lead to greater understanding simply to voice moral outrage, which would be easy. I mean, in an early, earlier book, 
that I wrote about how the Japanese and the, and the Germans remember World War II and how they deal with it, uh, called The Wages of Guilt. Um, I got similar criticisms from some reviewers that, you know, couldn't he have, have, have expressed um, his, his rage at what these countries did more clearly? But I don't think expressing rage is a very interesting thing as a writer. I think what you need well, it to can do, be if it's done well. I mean, it's, no, even if it's done well, expression of rage is simply um, either at worst to sort of show what a good fellow you are um, by being on the side of the angels. At best, it's it's uh, it, it 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 acts as a barrier against trying to figure out. To, Didn't to you get a moral it. upbringing, Ian? When you were brought up in, in in Holland, are you a rebel against morality? Are, are you Nietzschean? It sounds to me as if you you you're making an effort to avoid any kind of morality. No, not at all. I think it ta- it, it it's it's a given that uh, certain things are morally completely unacceptable. But you, to express a rage about it is less interesting than to f- figure out why human beings would act that way. Well, it's a given. You say, you know, some people might argue in the 19th century, for example, it wasn't a given to be horrified by slavery if you lived in the South. I mean, I know, idea- but we're not we're not living in the 19th century. It's it's a given now that uh, there was nothing morally uplifting about slavery and let alone about the Holocaust. That, that, I, I, I don't cast any doubt on that whatsoever. No, I'm not suggesting you are. I'm not, I'm not no, suggesting but so, that. So the, the fact that I'm, the, the, the point I'm making, that it's more interesting to understand why people behave badly than simply to voice uh, rage about badness, does not mean that I don't uh, recognize that there are morals and, there, and, and, and that, that morality is important. P- perhaps precisely because I believe that morality is important. I tr- I'm fascinated uh, by people uh, or, or the reasons why people would break from morality or be immoral. Yeah, the the one character who to me is particularly intriguing uh, in a literal sense is this Felix Kirsten, as you say, was um, he was born in the Baltic uh, Baltic German family in Estonia and became um, what the uh, the masseur of Heinrich Himmler was perhaps the most evil of all the Nazis apart from Hitler. It seems to me as if he had any moral obligation, he just would have strangled Himmler during a massage. Is that conceivable? Were there Nazi guards during the massages? Well, I think it's inconceivable because um, that would have been a suicidal act. It would have been. A, it would have made a good Hollywood movie, though. I'm not so sure. I mean, here's Himmler. Here's his masseur. His masseur strangled Himmler, and the masseur was killed. I mean. I don't see a great Hollywood movie there. <laughs> well, there would have had to have been some other narrative. But uh, in all seriousness, this guy got his hands on perhaps the most evil Nazi of them all. The physical element is part of your story. Weinrib exploited, abused women. Uh, Kawashima sold herself sexually. W- what is the the bodily aspect of collaboration, Ian? Well, I don't think it's it's fair to say uh, Kawashima Yoshikov sold herself. Uh, I mean, she had many affairs with uh, Japanese officers and, and possibly um, because she wanted their power. 
Uh, but she's well, she uh, so, sorry. I, I uh, you she was abused as a, as a young girl, and that perhaps yeah, she was. accounts for much, or you suggest in some ways that may account for her own particular collaboration. Well, I'm I'm not so, so sure it's so simple. You can never you can never psychologize people quite that simply. But yes, she was abused. Uh, uh, Vine Rep uh, was an abuser. Um, Kirsten, as far as we know, was not a sexual abuser in any way. Um, but uh, of course, the physical elements in these stories are, are important. And I don't think you can always separate them very cleanly um, from psychological elements. But, but, but to be too simplistic about it and simply say she was abused as a young girl and therefore she did this and that and that, would be crude. Uh, you, you can speculate, um, but uh, not more than that. Bloom is particularly critical of the fact that you don't, in her view at least, aggressively address wine reps, abuse of women when it came to his so-called gynecological uh, investigations um it, it does you mentioned bernie madoff um is there an element of harvey weinstein also in in wine rip no well i don't know i mean uh, i'm not quite sure how one should be more aggressive I, I i i've written about it that he did these things um he wasn't prosecuted for them uh immediately after the war and, and when he was tried he was he was certainly uh, prosecuted for them later, which is why he had to flee, flee to Switzerland. But apart from uh, describing his behavior, uh, I'm not quite sure what a critic wants a writer to do, to simply add more sentences and say, and of course, this is a terrible thing and we should condemn it and, and, how, and, and uh, this is unacceptable behavior. Of course, it's unacceptable behavior. The, the, and I don't think I need to, 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 to labor the point. I think the reason he did it, who knows, I and mean, he himself said he was sexually uh, peculiar, to say the least, um, it, it, I think it probably fits in partly with uh, his lust for um, power, for people being in his power. Um, but uh, I think all sexual, sexual behavior, um, unacceptable, uh, odd, eccentric, uh, etc., is always difficult to be categorical about. Yes, you can say it's, it's unacceptable and bad, but why a person does certain things, um, what accounts for their particular predilections, it's very hard to tell. People don't always know themselves. As I said, um, Bloom is critical of your, what she calls your big takeaway on uh, the, 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 the melancholy state of turning our own life into fiction. She says that shouldn't be, and, and she's more of a sort of moral black and white analyst. Um, are there other lessons from this book, uh, Ian, the collaborators, apart well, again, from I'm, the uh, fictional quality of our lives and the dangers well, of not coming to terms with who we are? Well, again, I'm, I'm not... I mean, writers write books for different reasons. I'm not terribly interested in takeaways or lessons. I'm interested in people and describing them and, try, and, and 
and figuring out how, why they do what they do and so on. That's my interest in them. It's not in, in teaching lessons. And the, also, I don't really see um, their uh, self, their, their, how, what should we call it, their legend management, the way they, they deceive themselves and the world and so on, as the big takeaway. I mean, there are many takeaways. It, it, it's also an, a, a, my book, an attempt to describe again what happened in World War II uh, from particular um, personal angles. But um, I don't think, and, and one, one thing that these three have in common is that they were mythologizers and they dealt with myths. And, and the reason I was interested in that, one reason, and why I was interested in writing this book now, is that in my view, we're living again in a period where the truth has become very elusive and where we can have a president of the United States who's a compulsive liar and where people make up stories about themselves. And that is one thing that these three had in common. But to say that that is the big takeaway of the book, I would contest that. Ian, it seems as if, I mean, as, as you know, I mean, and it seems pretty self-evident that Second World War didn't pit good against evil. It was much more complicated, tragically complicated than that. But we live in an age, as you suggest, where we want simple moral package lessons. I wonder why. What is it about today, you talked about now, that makes us so greedy for a virtuous reading of history, that we want our heroes or our villains carefully packaged up so that we can read them either as heroes or villains? Well, I think that's probably too big a subject to, to, to discuss in five minutes. I mean, that's something I'll give you six or seven. You can have but, seven but, minutes. Uh, but I think one well one possible reason is that we're still living in a kind of reaction to the 1960s which saw the collapse of organized uh, religion at least in 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 urban educated uh, circles um it was a period where people of my generation rebelled against um all kinds of um moral rules where it was all about expanding freedom and, and kicking over the rules of, of the older generations. And I think what we're seeing in some ways is a kind of quasi-religious revival where people are desperate for moral rules again. Uh, and uh, again, particularly amongst the educated urban elites who are not going back to organized religion because that's been, been pretty soundly renounced. But to, organ, but to, they're flocking to some another version of it, which, in my view, is quasi-religious. You yourself was, and I use this word carefully, a victim of of a recent controversy. You were the editor of the New York Review of Books, probably the most august uh, magazine on book reviewing, and you departed, according to this Guardian headline. A, amidst uh, outrage over an essay that you chose to publish. Do you see yourself as a, as a victim of this new religiosity, this search for certainty? I don't see myself as a victim. I don't like to see myself as a victim. Uh, that it played a part, yes. Uh, and again, I mean, it, it comes back to what you were asking me earlier um, about you know, these three the three characters in my book. I was interested in this particular uh, person who, who published an article um, in the New York Review when I was editor, not because I condoned what he did 
or because I admired him or wanted to excuse what he did. He was accused of uh, sexual abuse um, and um, was found not guilty in a trial, but then faced uh, social punishment for erect career and so on and so forth. So I was interested in the nature of the social punishment and I was interested in the story of a man who'd gone through this. Now, again, not to defend him or to uh, apologize for him or in any way, or to let alone to admire him. Um, I was interested in him and uh, in the current uh, uh, cultural climate uh, that is um, uh, not permitted because it's seen as giving a platform to somebody who should not uh, be given a platform. Now, uh, that's the disagreement. Am I a victim? No, I, I, I still believe in what I did. But perhaps this is a way of explaining my attitude. I like that term, in cultural climate. That is the euphemism of the morning so far. Um, finally, uh, the book is, of course, features uh, three characters, um, a Baltic German, um, a Jew, and... Um, uh, as you say, a, a woman born in China was adopted in Japan and, and collaborated with the Japanese. Um, you and, you've been on this show a few times before talking about the United States in particular. Are there, and, and I never really thought about this before our conversation, are there collaborators in the history of America? And, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that they wouldn't be very uh, sympathetically viewed. I mean, if you were to choose to, to do a follow-up, for example, to the, the collaborators which focused on American collaborators, um, you know, Americans love to heroize their historical figures. Uh, are there examples of American collaborators? Well, I, I'm not quite sure what sort of people you have in mind. America was not, never occupied by a foreign power. Um, it has not had a dictatorship. So who would be collaborators? What you can, I suppose, say is that um, under a, 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 an administration that is morally extremely dubious, like uh, the, the one under Donald Trump, you can mm -hmm. see similar figures. You can see the kind of people who possibly in far worse circumstances, such as Nazi Germany, might have risen to the top. Uh, chances, resentful people who feel that uh, they haven't been uh, paid sufficient attention, third-rate third novelists, all kinds of people who can suddenly um, become powerful by latching on to uh, an authoritarian or, or, or quasi-authoritarian or at least unpleasant regime. Yes, that you, of course you can identify that, just as in the early 50s, probably many people who... Um, joined in denunciations of people who were thought to be communists did so for uh, very uh, dubious reasons. But I don't think America's had this had yet had the kind of history that would throw up the same kind of things that I've been writing about. What about in the Civil War? Well, possibly. Uh, it, uh, yes, it's possible that there were people who collaborated with on from the. Uh, North who collaborated with the South, um, nobody immediately comes to mind. But I don't well, think I don't think human psychology really depends very much on culture or, or, or country. There, there are heroes and villains can come up in any country, very much depending on the circumstances. 